It's comical by Chasing Albert. I can't remember the last time I fought for something I believed in. Not counting, of course, Twitter tirades or resharing Insta posts about Palestine with a crying emoji and a this has to stop hashtag. My fight for peace is a daily grind on a tiny level. I fight for peace when my two daughters go to war. I demand peace and quiet when I'm on the toilet but my kids are still talking to me about Pokemons. I pray for calm when I'm shopping for clothes and an assistant insists I need to go up a size. That's about all I have the time and energy for. Thank God there are people who care about bigger things and are willing to invest their time and energy to bring about real change on important issues for the rest of us. Today on Comical, we'll talk to Daniel Archie from the Heads Up Alliance. Together with a group of passionate parents, he's in the middle of a fight for children's right to learn without distraction. Australia's leading government relations expert, Alistair Nicholas, also joins us to talk about how to drive real change. Welcome, Danny, and welcome, Alistair. Hi, Marie. Thank you for having me back on the show. I'm well, thank you. That's good. You both look great, Alistair. I can um, I can see you have invested in some kind of ring light. <laughs> or there's some is, beautiful is natural obvious? light shining down on you. <laughs> well, it follows me everywhere. <laughs> you know, Alistair, you were the first person I ever had on Comical. Is that right? Did, did you know that? Yeah. No. One I of didn't. my best performing podcasts. Oh, I was going to say, and you still have an audience. Yeah, yeah. That's true. People still download it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I'm actually really excited to have a chat with you both um, about making change. Danny heads up the Heads Up Alliance. Great name, by the way, Danny. Thanks. I uh, like I, it. I credit for it, but it was one of the other parents who... Um, who thought of it and we, we thought it was really good for what we're doing, so we ran with it, yeah. It's really great and it reminds me of being in the car when my kids always say, because they're not allowed to use um, phones or iPads when we're in the car, if I give them my phone to control the music, they stare at the lyrics in Spotify, <laughs> right? So yes. I say to them, guys, heads up, look out the window, but there's nothing to see. I'm like, there's trees. There's yeah, only the world. There's <laughs> Look up, please. So I really love the name. And I and I love what you guys stand for. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Heads Up Alliance and what it is you guys have been trying to do? All right. The Heads Up Alliance started when my eldest daughter was in year five. That was about, about three years ago now. And she, she reached an age where her mum and I knew that this time was going to come when she was going to insist that she needed a mobile phone. Um, and of course, the usual spiel is that everybody else has one. Why am I the only one who, who can't have one? So with a bit of a heavy heart, we ended up giving her an old iPhone, thinking, oh, this might not be the best thing. But, you know, she really persisted and we relented. Within a couple of months, we saw that it was just swallowing up all her time. So we <laughs> fortuitously, the phone d- died. And then we thought to ourselves, well, I don't know that we're going to give her another one. This is just taking her away from family time. It's She used to sneak it into bed and, you know, we'd catch her at midnight texting friends and things like that. <laughs> or not texting, actually messaging. Texting is so so 10 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> and so we just didn't replace it. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of, a lot of pushback from her because she had gotten used to it by then. I would mm. say almost addicted. And she would cry herself to sleep. For many oh. months, she really would. And and that wasn't a, an easy thing to see as a parent. But the, the alternative was 
in our minds, she either cries for a few days now or potentially cries for a lifetime later. Mm. We chose the crying for a few days. Eventually, of course, she got over it. She obviously still wasn't happy. So the idea came to us that what we need to do so that she doesn't feel like she's the only one who's without a phone. Mm. So we have to reach out to other kids in her class or her grade or her school who also don't have phones and don't have TikTok and don't have social media and Instagram. Mm. And that's how it all started. So we reached out to other parents. We said, look, are we the only ones who are concerned about this technology and who've decided that we're not going to just give it to our kids? And if if there's someone else out there, can you please reach out to us so that we can form a bit of an alliance mm. and so, that our, so that our children can see that they're not the only ones and that we parents can feel a little bit uh, supported in knowing that we're not the only mean parents, you know, in the school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's effective. That's pretty much how it all started, you know. But since then it's it's grown and one of the things that you're currently lobbying for is for schools to ban the use of mobile phones just within school hours. Is that that's right? right? Yeah, that's right. So we found that um, the message that we're trying to sell is a very hard one. Going to other parents and and, and trying to sell the, the idea that their kids don't need social media and don't need smartphones mm up until a certain age, because what we've we've drawn a line at year eight, we've said, if you want to join our group, you've got to commit to other parents in the group, as we are committing to you, mm. to not give your kids social media and smartphones until the end of year eight. So that, that's the minimum requirement. And for, for most parents, the vast majority, that's just, it's not something they're interested in, unfortunately. Mm. Well, I've told my kids they can't have social media till they're 30. So well, well, you're doing I well. feel like they're, yeah. yeah. Way better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole idea, um, earlier this year there was, a, there was a huge petition put out by um, a group called North Shore Mums hmm. uh, on, on about the idea that kids shouldn't have phones in schools. So hmm. for us who don't give our kids phones at all, that was a no-brainer for us to jump on board that, that train. Hmm. And it, it's really picked up in the last couple of months uh, we've been we've been lobbying for uh, schools in New South Wales, high schools in New South Wales, to yeah. um, not permit mobile phones during class or during recess and lunch. Yeah. Uh, other states have already moved in that direction. So we've got Victoria, Western Australia, and Tasmania have already moved that way a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh, they haven't looked back, and and we just think that New South Wales should do the same. They did look at the question uh, pre-pandemic and decided we're going to not allow phones in primary schools in New South Wales, but we will leave it up to the individual principals in high schools. We mm. think that it should just be a, a blanket rule for all schools um, in New South Wales. Alastair, it sounds to me like a no-brainer to just ask kids to turn or to lock up their phone from the moment they walk through the school gate to the moment they walk out. I mean, if for nothing else, let's put the kids aside if for nothing else, so that the teachers are shown some respect and can do their job without constantly saying, put your phone away, right? But to me, that sounds like a no-brainer. Let's assume it is. Let's assume it's a no-brainer. Why is it so hard to get such a simple policy put in place? Okay, I, I think um, I think there are probably a few reasons. And, you know, as part of this, I did a little bit of research on the topic because I haven't actually worked on this, although... I've been a parent and I can share, um, well, I am a parent. My, my <laughs> kids are all adults now. so I was going to say, did you give them away? Were they that bad? <laughs> <laughs> Sold them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but um, we went through the same thing uh, as Danny is going through now. Um, obviously, this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago when texting was was the big issue. And we were the mean parents, you know, we wouldn't give them mobile phones while they were, you know, under that year eight range. Um, we had one computer in the house that the kids were allowed to each use one hour for homework. If you had homework where you needed to do some research, it was in the living room and mum or dad could walk in at any time and see what's on that screen. So we were, you know, pretty strict. We lived in China at the time, which was also an interesting place to be while that technology was coming in because you had all these rich Chinese kids at school who all had the latest gadget, the latest piece of technology, or in the international schools, all the um, all the kids were spoiled because their parents just wanted them out of their hair because they were too busy living the expat lifestyle. Um, and, and there we were imposing this stuff on our kids who would come home in tears. Well, you know, Johnny or Jane has a, a mobile phone and they have all this access and we don't and we're missing out and all the rest. And that did, you, did you make them fax their grandparents at Christmas time? <laughs> <laughs> You're like you will not have you. We will go back to old school values, and you must fax your your grandparents. No, I'm just. Kidding. We, we had a carrier pigeon, Marie. <laughs> cheaper, cheaper. So, so I, I I can relate to that, and and I think to to us it's a no brainer. But I think here's where the issue starts to arise. That you know I, I always say to um to a, a lot of my clients that you know on any particular issue there are probably going to be four different points of view on it. You're not the only one who's going to be trying to lobby the government for something. And I think that's also the case with something like this. Maybe to the three of us, this is a no-brainer. You know, we've, we, we've dealt, we've been at the coalface of the problems you can have with kids with, with social media. But there may be people who haven't really been there, haven't faced it or haven't had quite the same experience. Maybe even parents who haven't, had the same experience. And, you know, little Johnny's very responsible with his social media account at the age of 10. I mm. don't know, maybe. Yeah. But but for something that is not about a blanket ban, there's no, it's not about do not give your kids phones. It's not about social media. It's, it's just quite literally lock up your phone just during school hours, yeah. right? So what could possibly be I mean, I don't know what some of the pushback, Danny, you've had some reasons why people say no, kids should have. I mean, one guy on Twitter that I had a bit of a um, to and fro with after a, a story on a current affair on this topic, he was like, well, so that they can capture evidence of abuse on the playground. And my view was let's give them guns then. <laughs> um, Sounds like my school. <laughs> <laughs> No, but but I was like, where are these schools in the ghettos? Why do they need to capture evidence? What's going on? But see, that was one reason. What are some of the reasons that um, people say no? They kids should have phones, or at the very least, what are some of the reasons that you know the the department, the education department, says no? Let's leave it up to the principal to decide. Why would kids need phones? So can I can I say from the outset that the vast majority of parents are actually in agreement. On this, on this point. So as I was saying earlier, selling the Heads Up Alliance uh, product, which is don't give your kids mobile phones and don't give them social media at all until the end of year eight is a very hard message for most people. Interestingly though, when it comes to uh, this issue about locking phones up during school hours, every 
every uh, survey that I've seen has has parents in agreement upwards of 80%, somewhere between 80 and 90%. So whenever, so I've heard of schools, for example, Davidson High School that brought it in, that made all the news in the last couple of months. When they surveyed their parents, uh, I think the feedback was something along the lines of 83% of parents were in agreement. Um, when, when I've seen polls being done online through uh, some news outlets, all, all the polls come back in the 80 to 90% range. Now, I know that's not a scientific study or anything like that, but it gives you some indication of, of where the level of support is in terms of parents. Now, where the pushback is, interestingly, isn't the parents. It is some experts who are obviously advising government. And the reasons that they give as to why it's so important that we don't have these bans and we, we prefer to call them restrictions, actually, and I, I just want to clarify this point. A lot of people say, well, you, you know, if you ban phones, and then they won't be able to, you know, my son who's got diabetes won't be able to manage his glucose readings. No, no, so that's not, when we talk about bans, we don't mean an absolute. Blanket, yeah. We mean that there are obviously exceptions. So if your child needs a phone to manage health conditions, then, of course, that's okay. And if a teacher in a particular lesson says, I need these mobile phones for a coding class, then of course that's okay. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about the other 99% of the times. Uh, we prefer to use the word restriction. Mm-hmm. So the reason we, the, the pushback we get about what we're pushing for, which is a restriction on phones, is well, kids need to, we live in a world that is saturated in technology. And if we don't allow them the opportunity to regulate their smartphone use, how are we setting them up for the real world when they leave school? I find that a quite pathetic argument. And I'll tell you why in a minute, if you want to know. The second argument that we usually get given is, well, if we don't give them these technologies, they won't know how to use them. Second pathetic argument. And yeah, they're, they're the two main ones, that, that we're denying the opportunity for them to learn how to use the technology, and we're denying them the opportunity to learn how to regulate their technology. Now, if you want to go deeper into either of those two objections, Maria, I'm more than happy to do so. I don't want to go too deep because there's still a lot I want to cover, but I do see the validity in the argument of they do need to learn to regulate and and use technology in a safe way, and that's, that's a view I hold. The view, though, for me is that's okay, they can learn that outside of school hours. (laughs) Yeah, could I um, just come back to that? And I think what Danny's talking about is quite important, but this comes back to the point I'm making, that on an issue like this, you are going to have a range of views. And there are experts, and the experts have the ear of the people in the government departments, they have the ear of politicians. And, you know, let's be honest, politicians are not experts in everything. The Minister for Education is not an expert in this particular area. So when she's got a group of psychologists or a group that has a psychologist coming in to say, Minister, here's why we think kids need to have mobile phones and this sort of access, the minister will, will listen to them. And so my point is that you need to have your own experts. And I think, and I've had a look at your Facebook page, Danny, for the Heads Up Alliance. And I think you've done a good job of doing what I normally tell clients we need to do, build a coalition of the willing find the like-minded people, the fellow road travellers, pull them together, and then you start to use that to lobby government. But I think there's a little bit more that needs to be done beyond that. You've done a good job of pulling them together. I don't know what else you have done. I saw on, um, I was on the page this morning, and I saw that you had written to the minister, and you've written to the department, and the department gave you a typical, I think, departmental type answer, which is, 
we will review this in, in, in due course or words to that effect. So the question then is, well, how do you get um, them to do it a little bit faster? How do you bring due course to now? The problem is now we want this addressed now. Yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned something a little earlier, Alistair, which is that we as parents are at the coalface. And I do sometimes think there is a bit of a disconnect between some academics and what's actually happening in reality. It all sounds all nice in theory that we need to teach our children ABC and, and so on and so forth. But the reality is the, these machine, these smartphones are addiction machines. They're designed to be addictive. And so we know as parents and teachers that on the coalface for all this uh, wonderful uh, um, talk of, of teaching children how they need to manage their, their smartphone use, in practice it doesn't translate because these machines are designed to addict them. Uh, the parents, the, the teachers don't have the resources all the time to sit there and manage the students' management of their phones. So what actually ends up happening is that these kids are spending so much time on them in their classes classroom lessons on the in the playground they're not relating to each other in any way and completely ignoring each other but busy with these with these devices in their hands and so yeah there, there is this disconnect as you said between what we're seeing at the coalface and what some academics in their ivory towers are telling us ought to happen well the ought there's been 10 years of opportunity to show us how it ought to happen and it hasn't happened what would have happened? So, firstly, education decisions and policies is that a state? That's a state level decision, right? Yep. Well, anything below higher education is a state level decision. Okay. So, except vocational education is also state level. Do the state departments speak and learn from each other? Because I'm really curious to know what was it that made Western Australia, Victoria, and Tasmania make this decision, and the other states not to? So, what? Typically, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you guys know, but... I, I know at the time, even though it is a state uh, prerogative or, or a state responsibility, Alistair, a few years ago, I think it was Dan Tehan, he, he was the federal education minister, and he was really pushing the states to move forward on this. Why? What was it that made it such well, a priority in, in, for him? In his view, in his view, the education standards were slipping in, in across the entire country. Um, and yes, even though it was a state issue, I think he was really pressing all the individual education ministers in the in, in the individual states to to look at restricting phones. And and some of them heeded that call, and some of them didn't. Uh, New South Wales fell on the side of no, we'd rather give each individual school that flexibility. Uh, but yeah, you're right, Marie. You make the point, uh, uh, and and this is a point we we also would like to make: is why don't we have a look at how it's worked out in Victoria, Western Australia, and Tasmania? Uh, it, they haven't looked back. Uh, we don't have to look far to, to know that this actually works. Even in the schools that did do it on an ad hoc basis within New South Wales, none of them have reported anything negative. In fact, they're, they're all doing backflips and trying to, you know, spread the word about how wonderful it has changed the school environment, how wonderfully it has done that. So, you know, the evidence is there. Maybe it's not a priority. What I mean, there'd be competing priorities, right? Yeah. Can, can I just go back to your question of, well, do these guys talk to each other? And I, I think the answer to that is yes and no. Sometimes they have a conference on something that they might think is a big issue and the state departments might get together and share things or someone will pick up a phone and call their counterpart in, in Victoria or whatever, wherever and say, you made this change. Why? What was driving that? But it doesn't always happen like that. And 
just to give you an example, I'm working on something for a client of mine at the moment, which is a state issue. And we are dealing with state governments in all of the states and territories at the moment on it. And we managed to get the type of right thinking we wanted in New South Wales. And we've gone into other states and we've been saying to them, well, this is the way it was done in New South Wales. And we were quite surprised that no one was even aware of it. And then we ended up sharing the information. And they didn't even say, oh, we'll call our counterpart in New South Wales to find out about that. They said to us, oh, can you send us what they did and what you were inputting into that process, which is what we've been doing. And so the the positive side of that is that we've now, we're now going to end up with um, a consistent regulatory framework for this sector across the country. Whereas previously we were worried we're going to have a very patchy one with different rules in each state and we would have to operate in each state differently. And that's only come about because we decided to go in proactively and see all the other states to say, here's what New South Wales has done. And we had a big input into what was done here to then start to drive that change in those states as well. And so I think there is a real need. You can't just assume that these guys talk to each other. They know what's going on in the other states. And also in some states, I have to point out, there's a little bit of state rivalry. And, well, we're not going to take lessons from that other state. We do it our way here. Oh, really? So you can't really go in and and just say, oh, they did it this way in Victoria. We should do that up here, up north. And, well, Mm. oh, no, south of the border, they're different. Elsa, it's interesting you say that there's that that bit of rivalry because I'm really curious to know what your view is on something that we've done recently which is approach Ooh, free advice i love it Blatant no, yeah, sorry, <laughs> builds in the mail danny <laughs> <laughs> we've had a good relationship with the uh, the opposition leader chris mins even before this issue became a hot hot issue in the last few months so we've approached chris mins recently and said look we're not getting anywhere with the state government do you want to say something about what your policy might be um, given that you know we're coming up to an election, do you have a view on this issue? Now, you, you talk about rivalries; it doesn't get much sharper than that, of course. And I'm curious to know whether you think that perhaps that was a misstep on our part. And, and we're still waiting to hear back from Chris, but um, you know we're hopeful that he might ha- have some positive things to say, and perhaps leverage that and go back to the uh, to the current government and say, well, you know, if if your if your rivals are prepared to move on this and you're not, that's a real That's a real point of difference here. I, I don't know whether that's something you would typically do. or. Th- so, yeah, um, quite often. So what I, I tend to do is look at when we have to uh, affect change with policy or regulation for a client is the first thing we do is a stakeholder map. Who's who, if you like, who's who in the zoo and where do they sit? Who's likely to support us? Who's likely to be against us? Who's neutral? And how do we shift the neutral guys across to our side? Quite often, I think people think, well, if I can get to the minister and I can get to the people in the department, that's it. You know, this is a no-brainer. Of course, they're going to accept it and they're going to move. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. And you've got to try to work out who influences the minister. Who's the minister likely to be listening to? And for this type of case, you need someone to basically instruct the department, we want it to go this way, someone from the government, so that the department's not just, if you like, left to its own devices on this. I would be looking at things like, is there a committee for education in the New South Wales Parliament? Who's the chair of that committee? Who's the deputy chair? Who else is on the chair? How do I get to them? And it's not just about writing to them. Writing's easy, and what you will get, you write to the minister, 
you will either get an answer from the minister's staff. It might be signed by the minister, but the draft was written by one of their staffers. You might have a response from the department because the minister's staff might flick it to the department to deal with. What I tell clients is we need to ask for a meeting. We want to come down and come in and sit down with you and talk through this issue. So you've got to really push for that that meeting. And it might mean you have to find those other people in the parliament that might also say, I've received a letter from these guys. I know they want to meet with you. Would you meet with them, minister? To really, really build that support and let the minister know that there are colleagues of his or her in the parliament who also support your sort of view. I would have the parents in your in your group, the people who support you on your Facebook page, write to their local members. Why only write to the minister? Get the local members realizing that, hey, I've got constituents here who are concerned about this. I forget what the numbers were in the surveys of the parents who would like to see this. There's an election coming up. They do not want this to be an election issue. So it sounds like, Danny, you're doing all the right things, just got to do more of it, which of course then lends itself to, well, how much can a self-funded group of volunteers, you know, how much time and effort do they need to put in to affect change? I know this has started to really blow up for the Heads Up Alliance. How, like, how much, how long does it take, Alistair? And I know, like, you are someone who you've been doing this for, I mean, I dare say, what, 100 years? No, just <laughs> close in. Somewhere close to that. You know, I started with Methuselah, so it's, it's been a while. <laughs> but someone like you is a is an expert, and I know you work with some um, huge brands and organisations and you are definitely one of the leading experts in this space. What do you say to organisations like the Heads Up Alliance that are doing this alone? Well, first thing I'm going to say, I'm going to come on the show more often if you do that kind of promotion for me. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, what can I say? It can be a, a battle at times, um, but it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be overwhelmed by it. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount of resources. So yes, while I have um, and do work with some very big brands, ASX listed companies, I also work with a lot of small companies. Um, and sometimes it's about building that right alliance, um, maybe getting some of them to put money in so you can hire the right type of people who can actually do this professionally and do it full time. Is that something that like organizations have done, like start really small and running it on their own and then realizing, wow, we've got a lot of work to do here. Where does the funding typically come from if they wanted to get bigger and do more? So I think for different types of organizations. So I've worked with small companies that have had an issue. And I said, well, if you've got this issue, I guess other small companies in your sector have this issue. Can we bring them into a um, association of some type? I've created the association. The companies then put the money into it, which then enables them to engage me or to engage someone full-time who can can then drive that. Um, one of the uh, benefits these days of social media, quite ironically, given that we're talking about social media, <laughs> is is the fact that you can do crowdfunding. That you know there are you know there are that many parents out there concerned about this, and you're not getting the traction you need with government. I'm sure there would be a lot of parents who would be prepared to put their hands in their pocket and say, "Hey, I've got a, fi- uh, a spare fifty bucks here. I'm going to donate it to you guys mm. to to do this." Mm. Um, so yeah. I'd look at what you could do on a fundraising basis. Now that you know, 
you you need to then have another layer of governance on top of it to do that. But you know, at the end of the day, is it worth it? Are you going to have to do that? Um, you know, you may be in for a long battle. You don't know how long this is going to take. But it's so easy, Alice. Like, I just feel like, okay, take a side. I know the Heads Up Alliance has a number of policy changes that they're looking for, right? But it, some that I know is going to be a much bigger battle, like the, so, not you know, not turning on or not allowing social media to end of year rate or use of technology. I think that's a pushing shit uphill kind of just, just to be clear, we're not asking for a policy change. That has to be voluntary. We're not oh, asking okay. for Okay, yeah, yeah. So the only change you're looking for is just restrict the use of phones during school hours. Um, yeah, at the moment, that that's the only thing we're asking government to, to look at. Um, I mean, there might be other issues down the line that we think uh, government has a place uh, for. Yeah. But uh, we're certainly not asking government to, to, to mandate that parents do not give their children smartphones until the year eight. That, that has to be a voluntary thing that parents decide on their own. But but we're talking that we're only talking about what happens during school hours. We you know that that is something that that schools can enforce, and we believe should should enforce. And parents are you know in a very big way behind this idea. So. But that that is still in a in a sense a policy change. You're asking the, the government yes. to make a change. That that particular policy. one, yeah. Um, and that's where you're going to have experts who are going in and saying, well, no, we don't want to do this because of X, Y, and Z. And I think. Um, on that current affairs program that had run it, they had interviewed one expert who talked about the risk of other problems happening with kids smuggling phones in, what it, whatever it was. But there are experts out there who are then, who have the ear of the government who are able to say, well, here's why we don't think we should do this. So you've got to be able to counter them. You've got to find your own experts. I think you've got to go in and have the meetings and sit down and have the discussions. Yes, well, well, the other person that was interviewed in that program was was Dr. Michael Carr Gregg, and he really is the expert on this issue because he led the review uh, for the government on this very issue back in 2018, and that review was 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 very um, non-committal about what should happen in secondary schools. He, however, has now come out really forcefully to say it needs to be done, and so we're really leveraging his his uh, his words and his his. Uh, strong view on this on this issue now to say to the government, well, hey, your your guy, your top your top medical doctor who looked into this issue a few years ago, who gave you the 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 option to to take the route that you t- took, is now actually saying this is an urgent matter it needs to be looked at urgently. Um, so he's been wonderful, wonderful support for us in the last few 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 yeah. weeks. Now, you may have done this, but one thing I would be looking at doing is getting him to write a new paper to say why he's changed his mind, why this has to happen, what's the the data that's backing it up, you know, really put together that sort of detail and then to be able to um, to provide that to the government, you know, hit the government with it. And I would also then be hitting the media with it. Here's a paper. It's not just... I've suddenly changed my mind because I've got kids and I'm dealing with this, but I've got a data-driven mm. research paper here that backs up what yeah. I'm saying, and I'd be going yes. out with that. I'm doing that at the moment with a client where we've we hired an economist to actually put forward an argument for why we need a policy change. Alistair, how long do these things take? I mean, even when they're when they're well funded, these changes take a very very long time if they happen at all, yeah, right? Well, it can depend on, on what the issue is. Like there are some which, you know, might be so esoteric 
that you just you just got experts talking to experts in government departments and to government ministers, and because it's not a big issue, the public's not going to be greatly concerned about it. The politicians aren't going to take a lot of notice or feel a sense of urgency to deal with it. I think this is a different issue. We were talking about okay, this seems a no-brainer to us. Why can't we change policy? Well, policy is there, and and there is a real thing such as policy and. Wouldn't we all live in a perfect world if policy was always decided on the best of the arguments put forward? But ultimately, politics comes into it and policy is determined by politics as well. And if you don't understand the politics and you don't know how to play that game, you can't get your message through. You need to know what are the vested interests, who are they, where are they, and how do we then counter them and let the politicians know that, hey, there are some marginal seats that may be at risk here. I would be doing a marginal seat analysis. Where are the parents? Where are the schools? And I would be writing to the members in those marginal seats and also targeting the future candidates. And we'll know who the candidates are soon enough. The election's due in March. Write to the candidates. Will you support this? Then be prepared to get out in the shopping centers in those seats with a sign up saying, this candidate's not supporting us. If you want your kids to have their mobile phone on during class hours all day, vote for him. Mm. Danny, it sounds easy to me. Just neglect your five children, give up your day job and go to, I mean, easy. Like, there you go, problem solved. But I want to um, also talk a little bit about this idea that, you know what, don't, no, why would we change parents? Parents just need to educate their children. Um, And one of the things being in marketing and comms myself, I find it, really interesting sometimes when we get asked to solve a very big problem with communication, you know, like if you think about smoking and calls to ban smoking, I mean, who on earth could ever claim that smoking is a good thing and we should continue to allow cigarettes? I know it's huge, right? I know I'm, I'm really simplifying it here. But the idea that we can just use education to make people stop in the same way that we should be using education to stop kids from vaping, why can't we just ban vaping or ban smoking? Like, see, they're the kind of things that I often wonder. How, as much as um, marketing and communication is is strong and and used to achieve great things, don't you think sometimes it's just impossible to make change through communication, no matter how good it is? I think sometimes, Marie, uh, the vested interests are very entrenched. So some of those examples that you just gave, when you think about all the harm that smoking does and the costs. The cost that it that it inflicts on on economies and on health departments, you think it's it is a no brainer, isn't it? But of course, there are vested interests, and so what we're learning in in the space that we're in is that there clearly are vested interests as well. We're still trying to identify them. Perhaps not everyone is out there to do what is best for children, and I think part of our job is working out what those interests other interests are. And what, what are those interests trying to push? Because it, it, it may not be what is best for children. It may not always be that. Well, exactly. You know, that's what I say. There are going to be vested interests out there. They're going to, um, they are going to be running their own campaigns on what they think is best, you know, for them. Um, or maybe they are alt- altruistic but um, deluded. And they actually do believe <laughs> that mobile phone access during class time is a good thing for kids. I don't know, and I don't want to judge them. But the the fact is, if you want to affect change, 
you have to put in the same effort that they're probably putting in. And I often have to say this to companies that I deal with, you know, who may be small companies and they're going up against one of the biggest players in the market who ultimately probably just wants to establish a monopoly in the market. But you've got to keep fighting if you want to preserve your own interests and your business. Whew, big, big stuff, hey? Big, time-consuming political stuff. I think it's amazing what you've achieved so far, Danny. I really do take my hat off to you and the parents involved in the Heads Up Alliance because I know it's all happening in your in your own time with work and families and, and it's a it's a passion project but you're, it's a project I think that you've taken on on behalf of a lot of parents out there. Thanks, Marie. Obviously, we're not the only people pushing for this. There, there, are, there are other groups and other individuals who are also involved. Um, so whatever has been achieved hasn't just been achieved by us, but certainly we've found ourselves in the position to contribute to that, to that push. And, yeah, as you say, even though we don't have great resources in terms of, you know, uh, material and time, uh, we also just couldn't walk away from, from the fight. So we're in it. We're doing our best. And, and yeah, uh, we appreciate We appreciate your words, Marie. Good luck with it, Danny. And um, anyone that's listening that would like to show some support, feel free to jump on Facebook and look up the Heads Up Alliance and stay across um, what, the, what the group is up to. Good luck, Dan. Thanks for coming on. Alistair, thank you for your, your words and your free advice. Danny, change your address. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alice. Yeah, thank you. Run for the hills. I know what these kinds of things cost. Thank you both for, for coming on. My pleasure, Marie. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 